0: and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Elizabeth Lewis, Managing Director and Deputy Head of ESG at Blackstone. Blackstone invests across alternative asset classes on behalf of pension funds and other leading institutions. And I was excited for this discussion because as Deputy Head of ESG, for such a large portfolio of assets, Elizabeth's got a really interesting perspective. In this episode, we cover Elizabeth's journey to doing the work that she's doing now. And we also have a great discussion about how a firm like Blackstone is thinking about ESG, how they're thinking about decarbonization, both of their own footprint, but also as important or more importantly, the footprints of the companies or assets that they work with. We talk about the motivations of these companies, we talk about where they are on their journey, we talk about what it is about Blackstone and their model that makes them able to have such a big impact on these firms, their long time horizons, their ownership model. We talk about their progress to date, what's coming next, and we have a great discussion about where their efforts fit into the big picture and what else matters as we strive to decarbonize our global economy. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Great to have you, and I've been meaning to connect with you anyways outside of the show because you grew up in the town that I live in now, and you've worked in climate for a long time, and I don't know how many people fit that category, but I'd like to know them if they do.
1: (laughs) Go Red Sox.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And not only that, I mean, you really do have an interesting background because Blackstone obviously swings a big bat. And then in your prior lives, you've kind of hit this topic from a from a diverse group of high-impact areas. So, And also, full disclosure, there are areas that maybe I'm less familiar with as an early-stage
1: technology startup guy. So thank you for making the time, and I'm really excited to learn from you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and so I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, typically, when guests come on, we just ask them to take it from the top with your current
0: role and company. So can you tell us a bit about Blackstone, what the company does, and what you do within the organization?
1: Sure. Thank you. I'm a managing director and deputy head of ESG for Blackstone. Blackstone is the largest alternative asset manager in the world. We invest across all sectors and all asset classes. So climate is really important to us from a number of different perspectives, and it's an exciting place to be and to really make a difference on climate change. I think a, an important part about Blackstone is that we are longer-term investors, right? So we, for many of our investments, we hold them for many years at a time. We have some perpetual capital vehicles. So I think from a climate perspective, this is a great opportunity because it allows us to do a lot more, I think, than some other types of investors that just hold public equities and don't have a lot of control or a lot of partnership with their companies. In my role, I sit at the corporate level and I get to work with all of our fund strategies across all of these sectors. I get to work with the ESG leads in the investment teams and also directly with the investment teams. I also spend a lot of time talking to our investors and in our funds and our shareholders. So Blackstone's a public company, so we also have shareholders and many of them have high expectations on climate as well.
0: It seems like you have really found a role that marries capitalism or profit and impact and that that's been a theme throughout your career. It'd be great to just delve a little bit into your personal journey. I know your earliest roots, but how did you find yourself working at this intersection and when and how did that quest for impact come about?
1: So- Early on, I think I had a pretty strong interest in having a positive impact on the planet. I was really fortunate to learn about climate change in college. So I had my first course on climate change when I was a freshman at Harvard in 1997. And I'm you know just so grateful that there were professors there at Harvard who were studying this so early on and thought it was important to teach right freshmen who really hadn't decided any particular interest or concentration but they thought it was important knowledge even back then for all students to understand. And with that grounding in the science, I knew it was just a really complicated problem and a problem that was going to be important for, you know, certainly much of my lifetime. I didn't frankly know sadly that it was still going to be such a crisis at this point in my lifetime. And I thought about different ways that I might be able to work in climate change. I was lucky to end up in management consulting after college, which I think was great exposure, frankly, to the number of different sectors that climate change impacts. And I had a really strong grounding in that experience working both with fossil fuel companies, the government agency that oversees fossil fuel exploration in the United States, but also sustainable energy companies, be it renewable energy companies, but also companies on the demand side of the equation, right, that wanted to be more sustainable, And I think I realized in that experience just the power of the private sector to innovate and to invest in technology and to be creative in coming up with solutions to climate change. And so I was always drawn to that, I think, that ability of companies and investors to really make a big change in a big way and quickly. But I've also, over the course of my career, really benefited from having a range of different experiences, all, again, focused on climate But I spent several years, for example, at World Resources Institute, the sort of leading think tank that focuses on climate change, started a program there to create research that was applicable and practical for asset owners to be able to invest in a more climate friendly way. I also spent several years at the private sector part of the World Bank Group, developing standards for how investors could invest in alignment with the Paris Agreement Thinking about how to increase climate finance and what the role of intergovernmental organizations are in that, and then also spent several years at a small but pioneering private equity firm that was focused on climate solutions. Sort of very early on, founded in 1990. So the the CEO, the founder of that company, was a, a huge pioneer in that space. Jeff Leonard was his name, and I think you know from that I saw these sectors that were niche really emerge and got to see what what worked and what didn't work. And so now that I'm at, at Blackstone, you know, we have just a tremendous opportunity to actually make companies across all of the sectors stronger. So for me it's just a sort of perfect example of I think sometimes in life you don't really know how valuable your prior experiences will be, but for me having that sort of diversity of experiences has really helped me be more effective now in a big global investment firm at Blackstone.
0: And since you've been working in and around climate for a long time, maybe talk a bit about what your theory of change was when you first started learning about climate and then how that theory has evolved over the years and where it sits today.
1: So when I started out in management consulting and then at Global Environment Fund, the small private equity firm that I was at, there was a lot of focus on trying to develop solutions to the climate crisis and then around that time sort of 2008 time frame when i started at global environment fund there was a lot of capital that poured into these solutions these technology solutions for climate and i think there was this idea that we just needed more capital and sort of a high technology i guess approach to coming up with these solutions that then would be adopted by the world and solved And then we all saw that the business models that were able to scale software companies and high-tech companies didn't really work for the energy transition. And we learned a lot from that experience. And we learned that we needed other types of financing, other types of capital structures, other types of investors. But I think the other thing that came out of that is that there were some really good solutions that came out and that were scaled, like Tesla. You know, the solar industry really started to take off after that and now you know certainly when you think about solar and wind i mean they're cheaper than coal and they are better technologies than coal and so much good sort of came out of that but it wasn't sort of the end all be all solution i think the other thing that we've that we've realized is that it's important to have global markets and coordination among governments not just you know to create cost competitiveness. So not necessarily just a, a price on carbon, but also just the basic research and the financing mechanisms from the government. So when you think about Tesla and, you know, Tesla, one of the most valuable companies in the world now, certainly the most valuable auto company, really benefited from the loan guarantee program by the U.S. government and the support there. And so that I think that's often forgotten, right, when when we think about sort of what has worked and what what hasn't. But at the same token, you know, when you look at it from the United States perspective, we really lost a lot of capability around renewables to China and to other countries, right? So there are areas now where we're sort of way behind and we'll have to make up ground to become a, a leader in this industry. And so when you think about, I think that my sort of theory of change has come to involve just the importance of global cooperation and governments coming together and I think the appreciation that the private sector really does have for this. I think another example of this is when you think about the dislocation in the energy markets that we've had starting last fall and leading up to now. I think it's sort of ripe ground for having better coordination for all of the investors now who, you know, in contrast to the 2008-09 timeframe, you know, investors want to go into these sectors at huge scale. And I think just a little bit of sort of guidance and coordination signals from the government will really help that process, make sure that we're investing at scale into the solutions that are needed for us to hit our net zero goals.
0: And if, if you think back to when you first started working in climate and how you felt about the problem in terms of how dire it is, our ability to address it effectively, and how bad things will get in the interim Maybe contrast for a moment how you thought about it then if you remember versus how you're feeling about it at this moment in time with the understanding that it'll continue to evolve over time as as more cards get dealt
1: yeah it's a great question something I think a lot about I think when I learned about it in college it, it seemed like a big problem but also a somewhat straightforward problem to solve I remember we spent a couple classes learning about the Kyoto Protocol and sort of the failures of it and thinking about what the solutions would be to that. And it seemed pretty straightforward. I think there was also a lot more consensus than there has been in some of the years between then and now about the science. Actually, there was, you know, even though the science was much thinner then, there was sort of more, I think, maybe trust in science across the board in this country. And so then I think there was a time where, For many years, I think climate seemed like not the most important issue on people's minds and certainly companies' minds, investors' minds. And I think now, on the bright side, we're at a place where it is a top priority for almost any investor, any major investment firm. Climate is a top priority, I I think, certainly for pension funds, asset owners, the long-term owners of capital. I mean, climate has to be a top priority and a top concern And then when you sort of survey younger generations of students coming out of school and how they are thinking about which organizations to go work for, climate policy certainly pops up as an important factor and important to them as individuals. So I think those things are all very positive. Climate has become mainstream. It's a mainstream concern for people. You know, unfortunately, part of the reason for that is also that we're starting to see The impacts in our daily lives, right? These hundred year floods that are now happening regularly and not just in places where there is not good infrastructure in place, right? Developing economies, we're seeing them in Germany and in our major cities in the United States, right? So this is really, I think, hitting home for people. The physical impacts of climate change, I think, have become much more sudden and and I think frightening, certainly even than I anticipated, they would be. So I think that's sort of this the alarming part of it, but also I think the constant reminder that I think allows many people, not just me, right? Part of my job is to think about climate every day, but I think those things keep it front and center for you know a wide range of, of people, executives, citizens, right, students, professors, all, all these important people in our society, climate change is now a top priority for them, even if it's not their official job to think about it every day. And I, I think that will galvanize us into a solution and a set of solutions over these next several years. I I tend to be very optimistic on that front.
0: And I have lots of questions about Blackstone, which we'll definitely get into. But before we go down that path, I want to stick to the macro just a little bit longer. When you hear about 10 years or 12 years and it's like a shot clock and that's all we have as a society to save civilization kind of thing. I mean, I know you're not a scientist by training, but does that resonate with you? I mean, is that just like a marketing thing to try to mobilize people faster? Is there is there merit to that? Do we really have 10 years? How do you think about that? How does Blackstone think about that to the, and you know to the extent that you think about it at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, it absolutely resonates with me. I mean, I think the scientific consensus is completely overwhelming, right? And I think an interesting, maybe even more alarming part about this too, is that many people don't understand that there's actually a pathway to net zero, right? We have to start, to your point, we have to we have to start now. We have to make progress now, and we have to turn the ship on the emissions over the next decade. It's not enough just to continue business as usual. And then in 2040, we all do a tight turn and Get to net zero by 2050, right? We will have blown our carbon budget if we do that. So I, it's very persuasive. And the immediate impacts from the physical world that we're seeing, I think, are just further evidence that the climate scientists are right and have been right on this front in a number of ways. So at Blackstone, we are fortunate that we have strong partnerships with our company because we are private equity investors. In many cases, we are taking majority control positions of our companies and so we have we have influence with our companies i will say increasingly even our companies that are not majority control know that they have to act on climate and have a good climate plan in order to be top in class in order to be competitive in order to get the next set of customers you know the next set of investors you know, certainly in order to go public these days, you have to have a good climate story. You have to be able to report on your carbon emissions. So for us, this is a great opportunity because we can partner with these companies over many years, right? We can actually invest our own time in these companies. We can make sure the climate is part of their culture. And so then they'll carry it on post our ownership, whether that's three, five, seven years, or some of these companies we're going to own potentially for, for decades at a time. So you can really think about the long term i think in an in exciting way there and that's sort of fundamental to our strategy is working with companies to put them on their their climate journey
0: uh-huh and there are some that would say that capitalism is such a powerful machine and it's not about abandoning capitalism it's about channeling it as a force for good and there's others that say that inequality is already huge And it's only continuing to get worse as the capitalist machine plays out. And as the climate change problem becomes more pronounced, it also will inevitably lead to more of a scarcity mindset where people with means will take steps to make themselves and their families or their organizations, et cetera, resilient. But the people without means are the people who least contributed to the problem, but will most bear the brunt of the initial impacts of it. How do you think about that in terms of our existing construct as a, as a society? Do you think that the engine we have is the engine we should use, or, or do you think that we are maybe leading up to a point where we might need to consider a more material change?
1: So I think the private sector and capitalism is a critical part of this engine, right? It's not the only engine, but it's a critical part of of this engine, right? So the economists predict that we need over $4 trillion of investment a year in order to build out the infrastructure to hit net zero by 2050. So $4 trillion a year is, is a huge amount of money. The governments alone don't have this money, right? So the private sector is going to be critical. The private sector also offers innovation and speed and sort of all of the actual practical solutions that are needed to confront this climate crisis head on. That said, the governments play a really important role in ensuring that the capital is directed to the right parts, that the world needs it, you know, really in particular making sure that these countries and people who were not responsible for the climate crisis receive, you know, the necessary investment capital in order to make sure that they, in the case of emerging markets, that they develop in a clean way, in contrast to the way right, that the developed countries all developed, we all developed using lots of fossil fuels. And then only when we had a certain amount of wealth did we shift to cleaner energy sources, and we're still not all the way there. And so we have to, you know, we as a globe, it's in everyone's interest to make sure that that doesn't happen with the emerging market economies. I will say on the point of who is most at risk and and suffers the most. If we don't solve the climate crisis, those who are the poorest and those in emerging market countries are going to suffer tremendously, right? So we, we need to do everything and disproportionately to those of us who have more comfortable lives. But if we don't solve the climate crisis, this all gets worse for everybody. So I think this idea that we should sort of Forget solving the climate crisis because it's going to lead to greater convergence and so that everybody will have a hard life. That doesn't really make make a lot of sense, right? We need to solve the climate crisis for the good of everybody, especially those who are most poor and most vulnerable. And we need the private sector in order to do that because of everything that the private sector offers.
0: Turning now to Blackstone, just to clarify, Blackstone is not It doesn't have impact anywhere in its charter, right? It's not concessionary capital. It's not philanthropic in any way. To the extent that Blackstone does care about impact and act on impact, where does that come from? Why would an organization like Blackstone, I mean, before we even get into what Blackstone is doing, like, why should any organization in Blackstone's shoes care? Other than the collective good, which is the obvious reason that you would hope everybody would care. But what about in their own, for their own selfish interests?
1: Right. Yeah. No. So yes, we are in the business of producing good returns for our investors, many of whom are pensioners, firefighters, teachers. And so there is obvious tremendous benefit and importance in in what we do. And that is the heart of our business is to be a good investment firm platform and to create long-term value for our investors. But we also fundamentally believe that we can be a force for good in this world while we produce good returns for investors and contribute to a stronger economy. And I think that's very deep in the value system at Blackstone, across the board, across our professionals, and right up to the top of our executive leadership. So the way that that actually manifests itself in our investments is that we believe that by implementing strong climate policies, by implementing strong ESG practices within our portfolio companies... We are helping to create stronger and more resilient companies that stand the test of time. And we have now a bunch of experience doing this. We have over a decade of experience working with our portfolio companies. And so we've seen the impact that that's had on our portfolio companies over time. We also are thematic investors, and we have a number of different themes that we invest in. Sustainability has become a huge thematic area where we focus on. So we see this, you know, in my view, this is potentially the biggest investment opportunity of our lifetime. This global transition, not just in energy, but in every single sector, needs to transition and needs to become climate friendly and ultimately net zero. And so that's a huge investment opportunity that on purely commercial terms, our investment teams, you know, are are totally focused on and excited about you know, I think the third thing to mention is just that all of our important stakeholders find this topic very important right now, right? So our limited partners that I mentioned, the pension funds, other types of long-term asset owners, right? They hold their capital. They, they're they going to need to produce good returns into perpetuity for their own stakeholders. And so they need to ensure that their portfolios are climate-proofed and that they have returns. You know, they have assets 100 years from now to provide to their constituents. So they've really taken, I think, a very strong focus on climate change. Our potential employees, this is important as a recruitment tool to recruit employees and to retain employees. And then, as I alluded to earlier, it's become quite important for us to attract the best portfolio companies, right? For us, this is a a big competitive advantage for us to be able to offer a potential company that we're going to invest in. We're competing against other investors to invest in this company, we want to be able to say to them, look, we'll work with you to make you the strongest ESG company in your sector. We have the capability here at Blackstone to to put you in a leadership position. And, and that's really exciting and, and something that's really important now increasingly for companies that we might invest in.
0: So you, you mentioned earlier in the discussion that one of the advantages Blackstone has is the long time horizons and the More hands on approach that you take with the companies that you work with. And I'm just curious from a time horizon standpoint, I've heard that before with some longer term capital allocators that if you look out far enough, the collective good and the self interest intersect, right? But is there a threshold? below which from a time horizon standpoint, they don't intersect and therefore other than voluntary because you're a bleeding heart, if you're just optimizing for your own wallet and those of your shareholders, you would not
1: care about addressing a problem like climate change? I think that's why a truly Blackstone's model and the opportunity that we have with private equity is I think much more powerful than other types of investors. I mean, just you know, as one example, we recently won the bid With our portfolio company, TDI, to build this transmission line from hydropower in Quebec to New York City. It's going to be the equivalent eventually of removing 44% of the cars from New York City. This project took over a decade to develop, right? So I think, you know, when Blackstone started this, it was, you know, a nascent idea. Many teams at Blackstone worked at this over many years, worked with the communities, labor organizations, environmental groups, with the power company. And there were many times over the course of this decade that there were questions asked, right, internally, is this a good, you know, is this a good thing to be putting more money into? It's unclear, right, what the outcome will will be and if there will be a positive outcome for Blackstone and when that outcome will be. And so I think in a lot of investment firms, they would have pulled the plug you know, much earlier. So I think this is something where having size, such that you can take some of these risks, but also having the patience, allows you to actually a understand the problem and then apply resources and apply capital to sort of work through what are sometimes very complex situations. Right? There's no sort of clear roadmap for how you develop a power plant working with all of these or a power line working with all of these different stakeholders. So I I think, I guess that's what I would say in terms of the private equity model and the ability just to really implement change. And I I guess my other example is just, you know, when we partner with portfolio companies, so we've, we've made a long-term commitment. So I think this would also be hard to do if you had a shorter time horizon, we've committed to a three-year emissions reduction target across portfolio companies where we control energy usage. So that, I think, just allows us to all be focused on the same page at a time horizon that is several years out. I don't think it's, again, the end-all, be-all. I mean, I think there is sort of these problems that are global and complex can't be solved alone by the private sector, and I think that is where governments really would like to, should come in and provide some guidance. I mean, I guess, you know, another point to make on this is I think that the private sector has shown that they really would like Some structure and framework from government entities. I mean, COP26, which we just had in Glasgow in November, I mean, it had more private sector participants than ever, right? This has become a major private sector event. And so not only are these companies saying that this is a huge business opportunity and they want to go to COP and they want to meet with each other and they want to do deals and they want to develop projects together it's a competitive advantage for countries to attract companies to their countries and the, so the the businesses go there to meet governments and to build relationships so they can expand into different markets. But I think they're also pretty loudly and clearly saying, you know, for us to act with even more sort of long-term purpose and strategy, you know, we, we really need sort of global systems in place between the governments.
0: Well, a lot of what we've talked about so far in this discussion is climate focused and your title is managing director and deputy head of ESG. Where does ESG sit relative to climate? So some organizations, for example, have a chief climate officer. Are they synonyms? Is there overlap? Does Blackstone have a separate climate team? How do you think about that? And, and is it tricky to choose whether you put the word ESG on your business card or climate? If you even have business cards, I don't know if they still exist.
1: <laughs> exactly. Back, back when we were actually going to conferences and meeting in person. That's a great question. So, I mean, ESG, for, for those who, who don't know it is stands for environmental social governance. And it's really investors' way of applying these non-financial factors in their analysis to identify material risks and growth opportunities. For us at Blackstone, we have three main ESG priorities where we really feel we can have a huge impact but also that these issues are important no matter what type of portfolio company you are. So these are universal top priorities on the ESG front. One is climate. The second is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the third is good governance. And so for me, it's quite helpful that I have a very strong background in climate because climate has become such a top priority for Blackstone and also for the world But the great thing about Blackstone is that we have a range of people who have different types of climate expertise, and that's, I think, really required now in this world to have a big impact on climate. It's not just, you know, there isn't just one profile of somebody who has climate expertise. As you know from all the amazing guests you have on this podcast, people now bring all sorts of different types of climate expertise to the table, and in an investment firm where we invest in every single sector. And we not only do investment, but we work with our companies post-investment, roll up our sleeves to actually make them better companies. And we have this big portfolio operations team, for example. We need different types of climate expertise. So I'm very much complimented by my colleagues. I have a, a tremendous colleague who is on our portfolio operations team who actually is, his expertise is actually helping portfolio companies to get on a lower carbon pathway. He's an operational executive who came from Rocky Mountain Institute, Jamie Mandela is his name, and he helps companies become more efficient. He helps them then, you know, acquire renewable energy both on-site and then moving to off-site, but he's he's truly an expert in terms of decarbonization of our portfolio companies. And then on our real estate side where for example, physical climate risk is top of mind, my colleague Eric Duchon has a tremendous climate background there, and he has helped really lead our physical climate risk pilot at Blackstone. And we actually have many more people at Blackstone too who have different types of climate expertise. But I've, those are just a couple of names to mention. And then we have experts also on our other ESG topic areas. So we have a new global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So she's really a subject matter in that. I've done some work in that, again, but like I'm, I'm not as strong on that area. She's really leading that whole effort. So that's sort of how we've, we've organized ourselves with a combination of ESG experts and people with ESG in their business card, but then also people with deep climate expertise sitting in a number of different places and subject matter expertise as well in diversity, equity, inclusion, who also work hand in hand with our ESG team.
0: And I I read that one of the initiatives that you would taken on was a carbon footprinting exercise within the portfolio. And I'm curious, given that the portfolio spans a bunch of different industries and sectors and that you can't improve what you don't measure, and yet measuring is different and has different challenges depending on what sector you look at, what's the Blackstone approach been in terms of carbon accounting? Is it tools that you've built in-house? Are you using... Outside tools. Do you feel confident that you have accuracy? Are there key gaps? Does it depend on the sector? Like, what's the general state of the state there?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. This is an area where our work on ESG across our portfolio of companies has really informed our investment strategy. And so, our partner on the carbon footprinting exercise is actually a pretty recent investment of ours, Sphera, which is a real a leader in carbon lifecycle accounting, ESG data. They've been a tremendous partner for us. We invested in the company last year and we will partner with them to do the carbon footprinting of of our portfolio companies. And again, we think it's one of the biggest carbon accounting exercises ever done and it's spanning all different sectors. So it is different depending on what type of sector you're in. This is a really interesting exercise too, because we've, it's actually important for our portfolio. It's important for us, again, as you say, to identify what the biggest opportunities for impact are, but it's also really important for our portfolio companies. And so fundamentally, we believe that helping our portfolio companies create this capability is going to make them stronger companies. And so they, you know, welcome our support in this area and the partnership with Sphera. And so, you know, this is an area where it's daunting because of how big it is, but it's sort of at this point becoming more and more table stakes for any company and as far as Blackstone is concerned, you know, we've done corporate carbon footprint, but we understand that really the biggest impact that we can have and the most important part of our emissions is our scope three or financed emissions, which is our portfolio companies. And that that's, that's really where we're spending most of our time.
0: And when you see the... Net zero commitments that are increasingly coming out from some of the largest organizations in the world. What reaction do you have when you see that flood of commitments? Is it excitement? Is it skepticism? Does it depend? And if it depends, then how do you, ju- like, what's your own filter to judge which ones are for real?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's exciting to see all of the net zero commitments. I applaud, you know, those companies and those those leaders who are making those commitments. For us, we've been really focused on immediate impact and tangible results over the short term. You know, we feel like that's where we have a potentially, you know, pretty unusual opportunity to really make an impact at scale because of our investment model because of our scale where we can invest the resources to actually work with our portfolio companies to build out these capabilities and to put them on this lower carbon pathway and in my view it you know aligns very well with the climate science which is that we need to make immediate impact we need to turn the ship within the next decade on climate emissions and we can't we can't sort of wait until you know close to 2050 to do that so I feel that, you know, we really have a leadership position by having these commitments that are short term. So in our portfolio, companies where we control energy usage, we've committed to 15% emissions reductions over the first three years of ownership in aggregate. And so that's very much informed by this pathway that the world needs to be on to hit net zero by 2050. So and potentially we will consider how we can go beyond that in the future. But for right now we really like that we have this short-term immediate focus having tangible results and i think you know it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of these global commitments and how much scrutiny there is really on them going forward i think that's a really important question to just keep asking companies and investors whether they have a net zero target or not but just what are you doing over the short term because that's really where where we all need to go as a world as much as i applaud these net zero commitments
0: so when you talk about the long time horizons of Blackstone and what an advantage that is, and then you talk about the short-term progress, I think the short-term progress is is great for the climate. Two immediate questions that come to mind are, so I, I get that in the long term, it's a healthy thing for these companies and their and their balance sheets, but how disruptive is it to their short-term operating performance? And then the second question is, what's the reception from the Portfolio company CEOs, and what's
1: the message to them? And then, same question about your LPs. So, from that experience, we've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work, and what is most cost effective. And so, when we're working with a portfolio company, we're always going in and at first tackling the highest ROI changes. So, that's usually energy efficiency. The second tier is usually on site renewables. And then we have capital expenditures. And then finally, offsite renewables. Lastly, and this is something I think we're increasingly excited about, is creating new pools of clean energy, right? That doesn't exist. Bringing new pools of clean energy onto the grid that doesn't exist. And so you can see from that that obviously that last one is expensive, and you know, is will take a longer term, a longer time horizon to actually pay back longer term ROI. So we we love this model that where we start with the highest ROI investments first because then we have more money we're saving money right and so you can do more the more cheaply you reduce emissions the more capital you have to reduce more emissions I think that's a really sort of important point for you know businesses to understand so that's sort of the knowledge and the skill set that we're bringing to our portfolio companies. We actually have a, a company that we had partnered with for many years that we then loved partnering with so much that it's now a portfolio company retech. And Retech is now our partner in working with our other portfolio companies to help them reduce emissions. So that's another way where just our experience in ESG over many decades has led to interesting new investment opportunities for us. The reception from our portfolio companies is very positive. I think increasingly portfolio companies realize they need to get on a lower carbon trajectory. They want to know how. They often have many goals and many things that they're trying to do at one time. So the more we can make it easy for them to actually have this capability to become climate smart and to become more climate resilient, the better as far as they're they're concerned. And they don't necessarily come in with this capability in-house. So that's one thing that they find very appealing about the partnership with us. Where there is resistance, in my experience, it's been mostly because the management teams of portfolio companies have many objectives, right? And this may not be their top objective. They just, they may be, you know, there are only so many hours in a day and only so many things you can get your own team excited about. So the more we can work with them to actually just integrate this into the program plan that we have for them, I think the better. I mean, the great thing is, is that my colleagues at Blackstone are tremendously supportive of this. So I, you know, we work really close with our deal teams. They're all very supportive. So at least We're all coming in sort of with with one voice and a collective effort to actually make our company stronger and more resilient by helping them reduce their emissions. And then in terms of our investors, both our limited partners in our funds and our shareholders, I mean, they're very enthusiastic about this work, right? I think this is, climate has become a top priority for so many asset owners. And so this is something that we like to talk about and actually oftentimes, you know, they're learning from us about how we're doing this because we've been doing it for years and we have these capabilities in-house and so many of them have their own climate commitments themselves that they either want sort of accounting data from us that shows that they're making progress or frankly, just they want to learn from us about our capabilities and how we've built this out internally.
0: And when it comes to these emissions reductions goals, which I think are great and the competing priorities on the operating company leadership teams have there been any examples in the portfolio of financial incentives getting tied to these emissions reductions goals? And have you thought at all about standardizing that across the portfolio in situations where you have a controlling stake and the ability to do so?
1: So yeah, that's a great question. I think this is an emerging topic. That's something that we're looking at seriously. We have this corporate commitment that we've been very public about, this 15% emissions reduction target. And so that's, you know, required and everybody knows that that's important and we can't not do that. So I think there's a high level of focus and seriousness on that. And, you know, I think we've seen so much enthusiasm for the program and from our portfolio companies as well, that I think there hasn't been, I guess, as much of a need to create incentives around that. But I think it's certainly a, this is a topic that I think is, is growing in interest, frankly, and growing as a practice, potentially in in private equity and in investment the investment world as a whole is compensation tied to ESG topics. So it's something we're putting a lot of research into and thinking about.
0: Well, I would just say, if you really believe that it leads to higher performing companies from a financial performing standpoint, then incorporating that into financial compensation doesn't seem like it's at odds with building the strongest companies, climate aside, but What do I know? I'm in the cheap seats. So what do I know?
1: It's true. true, But I think it's true. But I, I guess to counter that, then the incentive may already be there. Right. I mean, to me, that's an interesting model where for something where potentially the economic return, the investment return isn't quite as, I guess, understood by everybody, maybe. But I don't know.
0: Uh-huh. And a similar question just around, you mentioned that the portfolio companies don't necessarily have the expertise in-house. Does Blackstone have the expertise in-house? Like what percentage of the value proposition that you're providing these companies in this area comes from Blackstone versus from partners and vendors?
1: Yeah, so it's a big team. So we have a portfolio operations team at Blackstone. And in that, we have a sustainability team that's led by Jamie Mandel, who joined last year from Rocky Mountain Institute. And he has been scaling up his team. We now have an expert on carbon accounting on his team. We have different experts who have worked for years with companies on energy efficiency and reducing emissions. And then they work in lockstep with Retech, the portfolio company that actually works with our other portfolio companies to help them reduce emissions. And you know it's it's a nice partnership because you know by having a portfolio company as our partner, they actually see other things in the market too, right? They have other, other, you know, they work do a lot of work, for example, with the U.S. government. And so they see emerging policies and trends that are really important for Blackstone and also for all of our other portfolio companies. Yeah, so that's, you know, and, and there are a number of sort of synergies across the real estate portfolio where we've introduced solar panels, put them on warehouses, which has become an increasingly important investment area for us at Blackstone right warehouses are really a perfect place to put solar panels across them so you can we can scale up things I guess in a lot of ways by really leveraging the power of our portfolio companies and it adds capabilities that you know we wouldn't necessarily have in house although I would say our our in house actual Blackstone employees you know I think we're second to none sort of in terms of how much we've been able to scale up expertise on climate across the firm
0: It sounds like it's fair to say that you're ahead of your peers in this area, given how long you've been doing it and the sophistication of
1: your expertise. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think so. I think we have a very strong leadership position in this.
0: Well, a natural follow-up question is, have you thought about, and I mean, maybe this goes counter to your short-term self-interest, but have you thought about educating your competitors on these capabilities so that more companies outside of the Blackstone portfolio step up their game in the way that you've been having success getting the Blackstone portfolio companies to step up their game?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we actually think about that all the time. And it's an area that excites us a lot. So I I think, you know, we're right now undertaking just some really tremendous, exciting work, both on our work to help emissions reduction. So the mitigation side, the carbon accounting side, and then just investing at scale into these solutions. And so we, yeah. And and how do you, how do you measure the impact of that? And what can you learn about emerging technologies that are going to be a critical part of the solution to solving the climate crisis? All of this stuff, I think is just very powerful learnings that we have at Blackstone because we do invest across every single sector and asset class and because we now have these real experts in-house across a number of different areas that are critical to climate. So we have thought a lot about this and how we create some greater good just by the knowledge that we have. And so more to come on that.
0: Awesome. And if you think about big levers that are outside of the scope of your control that, if changed, would have the greatest impact on accelerating your efforts to get big
1: industry to decarbonize, what would you change and how would you change it? So I I think the really big lever is having greater guidance from governments and from intergovernmental organizations and standard setters, sort of everything outside of the private sector. I think the last few years have showed us that the private sector is is all in. I mean, I really think that's that's true. They're just on the whole, companies and investors are just extremely eager to invest in climate solutions. They're extremely eager to reduce carbon emissions, but they also operate in a marketplace, right? And it's in a capitalist system in our, our country, and so sort of greater coordination within government and then also between governments i think is really important rules of the road right if we're going to scale up investment such that it is this 4 trillion dollars a year that's required there's going to be need for greater rules of the road and again i think you just see the huge desire for that when you look at cop and you you, you know you sort of look at what companies are most proud what they talk about. I mean, the, the private sector is just, I think, yearning to have some, some greater guidance, I guess, about to help them invest at bigger scale, even in, into new technologies that haven't gotten to scale yet to solve the climate crisis.
0: And with a, a US hat on, how do you see that coming about, given how politicized the issue has become and, and how polarized we are as a country right now?
1: I mean, I I think we have to sort of get over the idea that solving the climate crisis will be bad for our economy or will only benefit parts of our population. I mean, I, I think, you know, solving the climate crisis is the best way to create economic revitalization in parts of the country that, frankly, have fallen behind it's the best way to provide us with products and services that are just better than our old traditional products and services. It's the best way for the country to actually, you know, lead and sort of regain its leadership role in the, in the world in sectors where it's fallen behind. So I think that's, to me, the sort of economic competitive case is is very clear. And I think that's, that's how the case has to be made on this. I mean, when you think about some of the infrastructure upgrades that our country needs, just doing them in a climate smart way is, you know shouldn't be that difficult actually when you think about the tremendous capital that the private sector can provide the technologies that are already cost effective and what parts of the country those those will benefit i think you know there should be room for negotiation on this on this front and potentially not you know making the economic case for it really more than that this is just about solving the climate crisis it's about that but also about sort of our, our country and making sure that we're, we're that we're leaders in the global economy.
0: I don't know why this question popped in my head now, and I've never asked it before. But any zany, crazy ideas that you think would be really cool that are way out of the box that you've never put out there that you want to plant a seed with this diverse, highly
1: strategic, highly engaged audience today? Well, one thing that I worked on early on in my career, which is not, is, so this is not an original idea, but I think it, you know, I, I think it's, new for most people, which is, you know, we could have a clean energy bank of the United States, right? We've scaled up, you know, our we developed the internet, you know, the we've been leaders in space exploration. You know, our country has been such a leader in so many important technological things that have changed the world. And there's no reason that the climate crisis should not be an area where we where we lead and we change the whole world because of our leadership. So, I think you know, something like having a clean energy bank of the United States where we invest at bigger scale into emerging technologies, but also really think about how to create financing mechanisms such that we can scale up the technologies that right now seem a little bit risky, whether they are or not, but are perceived to be risky by investors. And many of these technologies could be placed and these solutions and these companies could be placed in you know maybe rural areas of the country right that have been maybe not benefited as as much from s- some of these companies and innovation as much as big cities have and as much as places near big research universities so you know you could put a lot of these projects in rural areas and then also use some risk capital to have transmission right to build for example clean energy and bring it to areas of greater population So I think there's just a lot of if you think about the country as a whole and doing things that bring the country together, while also creating the industries of tomorrow, the government should have an important role in that and something like a clean energy bank of the United States, you know, would be would be my zany idea.
0: I'm so glad I asked that. I'm going to ask that again. And one of these days, the coolest thing would be if someone's zany idea on the show actually planted a seed and then someone ran with it and then it became a real thing. So who knows? One awesome. never knows. But now, now you put it out there. My last question is just for anyone listening that's inspired by the work that you're doing, which is pretty awesome, by the way. How can we be helpful to you? Who do you want to hear from
1: and about what? Thank you. I'd love to hear from many of your listeners. I think your your listeners and the other guests you had on your show are just this amazing community. And I think you know one thing that's become totally clear over the course of my career is that It takes people with all sorts of expertise to solve the climate crisis, right? There is no one mindset that is going to do it. It's going to take people with all sorts of expertise sitting in organizations across the private sector, governments, nonprofits, academic institutions. So I would love your ideas. I would love your ideas. I would love to partner with you on anything innovative that you think can really be revolutionary and bring us to the next level where there would be a place for an investor like Blackstone. Certainly bring us your investment opportunities. Any, you know, any of you running exciting companies in the energy transition or more broadly in climate solutions, please come my way. You know, we'd, we'd love to talk to you and learn more about your business. So thank you so much. It's amazing to meet your audience. Well, likewise, and anything I missed or any, any parting words for listeners that, that I didn't ask? always be thinking creatively. Think about what you can do to solve the climate crisis in your own role. I think truly everybody has a a role, not just at a personal capacity, but also in, you know, your professional role. So think creatively and don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, Elizabeth Lewis, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having
0: me. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, You can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.